0: You, I think all of you have a really good set of lungs. It's a wonder they're not farm kids. That's what we always said there. You, you always tell the Simpsons we're in the bunch just because of the, the hooting and hollering and voices we'd make and uh, whoever thought preachers and involved in local church. Well, kids, I think it's time for you to go downstairs. Edward has a, a lesson prepared, and we're, we're going to learn a little bit from John chapter 9 as we continue to move Move forward. So. It's not, it's not, it looks like Gabriel wants to stay up with us. Well, John chapter 9, as the kids are making their way downstairs, um, for those that are, are reading ahead, and I really encourage you to be, to be reading just to familiarize yourself and, and it might help grasping some of the different details um, that are coming out of these messages just as I was thinking this week, this morning we'll be looking at the topic of sin, right? And then we see it right off, right off the bat here. The disciples ask a religious question. And uh, just and I'll explain this in a bit, but a, a religious question that doesn't really make much sense for us today, because, because we understand the, the truth of it. But they ask a religious question. We see later on in this chapter, the Pharisees themselves accusing Jesus of being a sinner. And oddly enough, we're going to see this restored blind man teaching the theology of sin to the Pharisees themselves. And if nobody else finds that ironic, something's missing. But but the, the sin, right? What happens this morning? What happens if we don't have a proper understanding of sin? And I want you to just pause and think about that. What happens if we don't have a proper understanding of what sin is? Proper understanding of who a sinner is? Or a proper understanding of who is responsible for sin? What happens? I just wrote down this, this here. All of a sudden we find ourselves living a life or living in a culture with no accountability for sin. Right? We have no accountability. And all of a sudden we find a, a, no need for Christ. No need for the church. No need to know what was done at Calvary for us. And this kind of explains where the world is today. They don't know what sin is. They, 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 They don't understand the definition of what a sinner is in need of grace. They don't understand. They don't understand who is responsible for sin. And unfortunately, that's finding its way into the church. So this morning I'm going to pray, and we're going to be looking at that, sorting through what is sin, right? who the sinner is, and who is responsible for sin. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you again for this morning. I thank you for just, just hearing pages turn in your word. Lord, and, and, and as I look out over um, this church family, there's an expectation to hear from you. I just pray that your verses, Lord, would speak, speak over everything. Lord, whether it's what's going on this morning, Lord, maybe what's going on this week, whether it's what I'm going through, Lord, I pray that your verses would speak over and above that and and just just reach the depths that we know they can. Lord, and I just pray that you'd be with me as I share. And it's not a comfortable topic this morning, but the disciples had to face it. Lord, Jesus died for it. Um, The church needs to to step back into calling it what it is. I just pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, this morning, um, again, we're just going to be sorting through the confusion as to what sin is, right? Who the sinner is and who is responsible for sin. Um, I'm not sure whether that slide is there, Michaela. Okay, it's not coming up. Okay, I must have done something wrong on the computer. Anyway, that'll be our three points. Definition for sin. Who is the sinner? And, and, and who is responsible for sin. So let's just begin by reading John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now as Jesus passed by, we remember last week we, we kind of uh, outlined how Jesus is looking for that, that one last chance to come before the shepherds. And the last verse of John chapter 8, we have them throwing rocks at Jesus for presenting truth. Uh, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind, from birth, right? That's pretty blind, right? That, isn't a, that wasn't an accident. That wasn't through through life. That wasn't eyes deteriorating. That was blind from birth, whether it was genetic or you read with medical histories that there's different bacterias that the newborn babies, as they're born, there's salves for them, right? But, but this, this child was born from, blind from birth. There's two. And his disciples asked him, saying, Here's the question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I'm going to read that one more time, and I just want you to, just to, just to concentrate on this. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Was this just one disciple asking this question? You'll notice at the beginning of verse 2, it's disciples, it's plural. This was a collective thought of a group of men following Jesus, some of them for, for even three years at this point, asking this question. Jesus answered, and we don't know how he answered, but we know what he said, neither this man nor his parents sinned but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Looking forward to his audience before the Pharisees. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is the day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Well, I don't know about you, but the first time reading this in in preparation... um, my alarm bells went off with this question. Right? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Right? Those red flags. Sometimes, even when we don't understand what's wrong with it, technically, we know that there's, something, something, there's an error here. I very quickly understood that, that these disciples didn't know how sin works. In order to make a statement like this, they didn't know how sin works. Why was that? So as you start asking that question, why were these disciples in that place? And, and again, following Jesus, they're sitting underneath this teacher. Why were they in the, this place, the disciples, of asking a question that has such theological error? Now, I don't want to be too hard on them. But these disciples were caught up in religious confusion. Okay, Because religion does that. It causes confusion, What happens when you have a wrong understanding of sin? You find yourself as part of a religion that condones sin. You find yourself as part of a religion that excuses sin or ignoring it. When you begin processing this, you understand that in 10 months, these disciples would be leaders in their churches. In 10 months, they would be pastors. Ten months, they would be teachers, evangelists. We go through that list in Ephesians chapter 4. There is no room for confusion when it comes to sin. And that's when we kind of quiet ourselves to the seriousness of this. I asked the question this morning, just in light of, of this question that the disciples are, are, are proposing here, how important is it to know what you believe? Very important, right? But how, how important is it to study so that you can know what you believe. How important is it to, to study so that you know what you believe so you can live what you believe? Teach what you believe. Parents, and, and the, way, the way our society is going, grandparents, the children, because they're not getting it from their parents, right? How important is it for you to know what you believe? Because I know I don't have enough time with them from the newborn to 14 years old. Because by 14, they're given their own choices and we don't see them anymore. How important is it for us to understand sin so that we don't condone it, so we don't make excuses, and we don't ignore it. And that's the seriousness of the topic this morning. The disciples didn't know what God says about sin. Right? They didn't know that they were part of that, that religious condoning, excusing, ignoring. So what did they believe? Right? And that's why I keep emphasizing what the Pharisees were teaching in their Judaism and their Mishnah and, and, and assisting God's Word to, to, to mean more of what He says. Right? That's absurd. Remember this morning what the Pharisees believed and taught. They believed that you make your own life choices. Right? They believed that you decide according to how your life looks, according to your decisions between right and wrong, you decide according to works whether you are righteous before God or not. And that's terrifying. That it's terrifying, but that's what they were teaching. You make your life choices. You choose to be righteous or unrighteous before God. It's called self-righteousness. It's what your life looked like. It's what you were doing. The Pharisees had created a religion of good-hearted people, good-hearted people doing good things, and they had called it spiritual. All right, and we see the repercussions all through the early church with this. Good-hearted people doing good things. Sounds a lot like the, the rural community mindset, doesn't it? Good-hearted people doing good things, calling it spiritual. It was a religion, a religion that, that does damage. We know Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Right? This idea that what I do makes me good before God, it cause, causes problems in so many different areas. Being a good person does not make you righteous. The Pharisees had created a religion of good-hearted people doing good things, calling it spiritual. So ask yourself, the why, why do the disciples ask this question? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? These disciples, right? And what, even if it was just speaking to the, the, the 12 that are following Jesus here at this point, they were raised in a Judaism self-righteous culture. Right, a religion, a self-righteous religion that judged people for what they did. Now listen, if you were spiritual, if you measured up to the, the Pharisee's standards, if you measured up to, to, let's say, God's standards, you could see it in your life. Right? If you were spiritual, you were in the synagogue on Saturdays. If you were spiritual, you were in the synagogue on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That was one of their measuring rods for their self-righteous religion. Their standard of being okay before God. Look, if your life was in order, then you would be wealthy. Right? You would carry a prominent position in the, the synagogues. Right? I think to, to how dangerous it is to look at someone and judge by appearance how they're doing before God. That's religion. We continue with that. These disciples following Christ passed by, and the last verse of this chapter explains to us that, or not this chapter, but this narrative explains to us that this man was 40 years old, blind from birth, his parents taking him to the gate, broken, suffering for 40 years. This passage tells us that the disciples following Christ passed by this 40-year-old man, and just like the Pharisees in Luke chapter 18 says, I'm glad I am not a sinner like this man. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Do we see the dangers of religion this morning? Of outward outward, and elevating yourself and, and making sure that if, if this looks good, then I'm spiritually okay with God. Right? If we don't understand what sin is, who a sinner is, and the responsibility for sin, we condone sin. We make excuses for sin in our lives, that, that, that lawlessness, that going against what God commands in His Word, and we ignore it. This is a self-righteous religion, and there's much confusion as to what sin is, the sinner, and the responsibility. I want to pause for a minute and just think about the Christian religion. Think of the Christian religion. And I say religion because there is a difference between those who have a relationship and are following spiritually as the Spirit leads and those that are following practice. Think of the Christian religion. The Christian religion says that as long as you are at the church on Sunday and have a good name in the community, you are spiritually doing okay before God. And we find ourselves in that religious confusion as to what sin is condoning excusing when the bible says that the god judges your life according to what is going on in your heart all right we all know this morning we can sit in the pew and things are not right in our heart turn with me to jeremiah chapter 17 jeremiah 17 and i think if you mark your bibles it'll be marked but Jeremiah 17, 9, we don't often move much past verse 9. Right? The Christian religion says that as long as everything on the outside is doing okay, then you are spiritually okay before God. But well, we know that God looks at the heart. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Don't stop there, though. I, the Lord, search the heart. Right? That's not religion. That's God searching your heart. That's the Spirit searching your heart this morning. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, your thoughts, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Wages. What it's paid for. Christian religion says as long as you're on the church on Sunday, you have a good name in the community, you are spiritually doing okay. When the Bible says that God judges your life according to what's going on in your heart. And I just wrote this warning down this morning. Be wary of religion. Religion condones sin. Religion excuses sin. We see the confusion evidenced by comments such as they are good kids and work hard while living in blatant sin. About their business is doing good. I'm thinking of of. Christians, professing Christians we no longer see. And this isn't unique to Coldstream. This is, this is globally. This is universally. Their business is doing good. He is a good man. The community loves them. And yet living in sin. They are respected in the community but have nothing to do with the church. Nothing to do with ministries. Nothing to do with the commission of Christ. The things that they are commanded to do. And yet... There's that confusion as to what sin is, what the sin, who the sinner is, the responsibility for sin. Religion condones sin. And again, I'm back to thinking about these disciples. Ten months from now, they'll be church leaders, right? Pastors, evangelists leading the charge for the commission of Christ. In this chapter, John chapter nine, we see a lot of confusion but we realized this morning that this is not originally, original to these young men. Right? If, they, if this is, these disciples is speaking to the twelve and we've done the math before, they are young men in their late teens and early 20s learning the, the foundations of why Christ had come, the foundations of the church. This was not original to them, this idea of sin passing through because of parents' mistakes. It's a horrible thought. Connor wouldn't have a chance. Right? If he had to pay for everything that I did, right? it doesn't work like that. But we see that this idea isn't original to them. These disciples are reflecting what they were raised in, what wasn't properly taught, what wasn't addressed, and that's understandably so. And what happens when there isn't an understanding of sin, who a sinner is, and who is responsible for sin? We find ourselves in a religion where we are condoning sin where we're excusing it, or almost worse, we're ignoring it. I want you to turn with me to to Exodus chapter 20. Genesis, Exodus. I don't know whether I I coined this term, and Krista says when I come up with something, I can't write it down and say it and call it a quote. Somebody else has to use it before I can call it a quote, but a heritage heresy. right? A heritage, I'm sure I read it somewhere, but a heritage heresy, something that they grew up in. Right? These young men are just repeating something that they were groomed in um, growing up. Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. Right? And it's all about, about calling Israel, who has just left Egypt, to God Himself, consecrating them, giving them instructions so that they could live wholly separated from the world. Right? And we see that, that a lot of these things address just direct things that people are tempted by. So where did these, these disciples get this heritage heresy from? Well, it was from verses 4 to 6 as we, we read it. But let's begin in verse 1. Standing on Mount Sinai, Moses receiving the commandments, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. Leave the world behind. I've called you away from it. Leave Egypt and the idolatry and the things of the world behind. You shall have no other gods, small g, because there's only one true God. Right? The devil presents many different gods that distract us, that lead us to brokenness. You shall have no other god, small god, be- g, before me. You shall not, here's where we plug in to the heritage heresy, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Right? No objects, no images, no no things that you can place before you that that, that your heart exhibits worship or service to words. You shall not bow to them, nor serve them, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God wants all of you. God doesn't want bits and pieces. God wants all of your worship, all of your service. That's not just a a casual thing either, because he goes on to say, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Somewhere along the lines, we know the father of lies, right? We know what Satan does. We know human error uh, through that. Somewhere along the lines, the people twisted that. Somewhere along the lines, all of a sudden it became about sin passing from the parents, to the child, and that's not how God operates. What the Pharisees believed was if there was a physical infirmity in someone's life, then the family within four generations was obviously unrighteous in idolatry. Somewhere along the lines, they they started worshiping objects. Somewhere along the lines, God was taken from from being first in priority and, and, and made secondary or less. And because of that, God gives the blind child the parents' punishment. Isn't that horrific? Isn't that horrible to think about? Doesn't that go against God's character and what the Scripture is? But that is, that is what religion does. I said to myself, don't tell me the father of lies or Satan isn't behind this one, but then we can look at other religions, Catholicism and, and, and Islam, and, and, and it all has elements of works, elements of, of twisting truth. Now, we understand this morning that that God does not work that way, and we're going to look at verses. But obviously, this penetrated, this heritage heresy found its way into the disciples' understanding, and they asked Jesus this question, Rabbi, who sinned, his parents, this man or his parents? We understand this morning that sin has consequences. Right, I think we can nod our heads. Sin has consequences. We might not understand this when we're in our teenage years or our younger years, right? But sin has consequences. Alcoholics, right, and substance abuse, you're probably going to see your children participating or at least trying it at some point. Sin has consequence. Divorce, adultery, right, sexual relations out out of wedlock, this is verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. You will likely see that brokenness in your family later. Right? That's why it's so important for God's design of marriage. Right? How about no desire for the Word? No desire for the church? No desire for serving? You aren't likely going to see that in the children. Right? This isn't saying that, that God punishes the children for the parents' sin. This is speaking to consequences that that follow down through. And ultimately, understanding these verses properly is supposed to, for the parent, understand that that they need to live right so their, their children are watching and emulate that. And the same thing for the child, as they see God being placed first, right, and nothing coming before Him in the life. They see that, and they understand the importance of that. These verses are not saying that God punishes you this way, the way the disciples were thinking about sin being passed down. But recognize this. There is punishment for sin. Right? God will punish sin. You don't get to live how you want and go unscathed. But not not by giving you a blind child. That's not how God works. And I'm not telling God how He works either. That's, that's, it goes against Scripture and His character. The leaders of Judaism, and we see this coming out of, out of the mouths of the disciples here, the leaders of Judaism had created a religion that only cared about what your life looked like, what you look like on the outside. And perhaps there are people here this morning that are more worried about what people think, what people are seeing, than what God is seeing in their hearts, right? And I think we can all relate with that at some point in our lives. We're more worried about the front that we put on rather than dealing with what God is trying to deal with in our hearts. That's what keeps broken sinning people from the place, the church, the community, where they need to be, right? This worrying about what people are going to judge, that religious thought, One of the loudest messages of the church today needs to be that Christ died on the cross. Christ died on the cross not for the religious, but for the broken, for the sinner, for the real life breathing person that is desperately clinging to God's promises. And I think of that broken 40 year old blind in the street. He needed to meet Jesus. His life was touched, and we'll get that next week and 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 just basking in that this week. He needed, he needed to meet Jesus. He needed his life to be touched, and his life was changed to this place where he's testifying to these people that are in religious error. <laughs> you are wrong. Right? I may not know whether he's a sinner, <laughs> but I was blind and now I see. We are the body of Christ as we come in through these doors and, 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 and we testify of who He is in our lives, we are the spiritual body of Christ. We are in a spiritual relationship. I pray that we can leave religion at the door. We need Christ. right? We need this. We need what Wednesday nights bring. We need what Sunday nights bring. We need that spiritual community, that help, that support. We need each other. So then we come down to sin. There is no confusion to what sin is. Right? It's lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness. It's, it's what contradicts what God says. It's going against what the Spirit, as you're, 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 you're governing your life by this, the Spirit is saying this is truth, and you're going against that. There is no confusion to what sin is. There is no confusion as to who is a sinner. There is no confusion as to who is responsible for sin. And yet for some reason, I think among the ranks in Christianity, there is a confusion to that. Children are not responsible for the sin choices of their parents. I think we just figured that out from Exodus 20. They have to work through the consequences. Right? And we know broken homes. right? We know the children have to, to work through that. The same way parents, biblically, are not responsible for the decisions of their children. I'm trying to think there. It, it, I want to emphasize one thing. Biblically, if, you are, if the Word of God is coming out of your mouth and your grown children are hearing God speak. They are making decisions for themselves. Right? And biblically, I don't think many parents know where to read and turn for that, that biblical truth. So this morning I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And I want to just read this chapter as to what God says about sin what God says who the sinner is and what God says about who is responsible for sin. Because a lot of broken hearts um, try and live their lives. A lot of, a lot of children relying on their, the, the faith of their parents and the coattails of what they believe without reading these truths. Ezekiel chapter 18 just coming back to, as, as people are turning there, coming back to the confusion that the disciples are showing before Jesus. Right? Heritage heresy, what they were raised in. Coming back to, to walking three years with Jesus. The future leaders of the church going, who sinned, this man or his parents? Right? This needed to be cleared up. And we come back to Ezekiel, and this is going back to the Babylon, Babylonian captivity, beginning in verse 1. Says the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Right, more or less the, the people of Israel going into judgment were saying, God, this judgment isn't fair. We're dealing with the sin of our, our fathers. It's not fair. We're being judged for something we didn't do. Well, let's see how God responds. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. Ooh, all of a sudden we get back into traducianism, right? And, and, and Dr. Doherty's nodding his head, right? Where does your soul come from? Well, God doesn't create it. This takes us back to to the garden, right? Where God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed life into his nostrils, right? That was his soul, spirit, and his physical, right? Then we understand that Adam and Eve had babies. We understand how that works, right? But we don't see God creating another soul, right? We see the immaterial and invisible passing through into the children, So we understand that that when a child is born, they are born through their parents, the soul, spirit, and body. But what does God say here? Right? Behold, all souls are mine. That's a reckoning. Right? As the soul it comes into existence, and I mean we could really start going deep. I mean at conception, right? Sperm meets egg, right? Life no matter what the abortionists say, no matter what, what pro-life, it's, its life starts at conception. Right? And God says, Behold, all souls are mine. Right? That also speaks to the end. There's a reckoning. You're either found righteous before Him through salvation, through Christ, through how He provides righteousness, or there is a eternity of separation. Right? Self-righteousness. And we know that it ends up in hell. So there's a, a life. So there's a lot here. But God says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So we understand sin, right? Sin is lawlessness going against God's standard, God's law. We understand who the sinner is here. okay? We understand who is responsible for the sin. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains or the shrines or the idols, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and exacted, exact, me, executed true judgment between man and woman, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just and he shall surely live, says the Lord. There's a decision that was made, a decision of obedience, decision of, of following God's standard. But what of this man? What of this father? If he begets a son who makes choices, right? a son who understands God's standard, and I'm just trying to show us biblically who is responsible for sins so that we can take comfort and be convicted at the same time from this. If he begets a son who is a robber, or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, and it glists off there, um, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, adultery, if he has oppressed the the poor and needy, ah, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols, or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury, or take an increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. His decisions, his choices, his his life. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. His decisions. If, however, this is the father, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done, and considers but does not, like, does not do likewise, makes decisions to go the other way, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury for increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes. Because he's made that decision, because he's decided to not follow in his sinning father's footsteps, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence and did what was not good among his people. Behold, he shall die for his iniquity. That's pretty straightforward, what sin is. The definition of who a sinner is and who is responsible for the sin. But let's keep reading. And I'm thinking of of Israel. I'm thinking about that religion that they created to condone sin, to excuse it, to ignore it. Um, The beginnings of Judaism that we see come out of Babylonian captivity. Yet you say... Why should the Son not bear the guilt of the Father? Right? This explains the, the, the Pharisees or that question that disciples ask. Right? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Right? Yet you say, why should the Son not bear the guilt of the Father? I mean, there, there was a, a misunderstanding there. Because the Son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. Here's our verse 20. Most of the time we don't read before this verse or after this verse, but uh, um, to get the picture. The soul who sins shall die. Who is responsible for sin choices past the age of innocence, right? Now we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross and His lifeblood paid the price for all sin for all the whole world, right? And we yet call on Him for salvation and we're forgiven. That's the redemption that we're promised. For us as believers, when we sin, right? We confess, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're thankful for that. But you are responsible for your own sin. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father. Right? Let's remember that. Nor the father bear the guilt of the son. As they're making those life choices... For a parent, you don't have to be broken. You are broken for the sin and you pray earnestly, but but that guilt is not on you. They're making those choices themselves. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has Committed, right? Saved from the fire. And we could get in into that, right? We have a responsibility as the church of reaching in these situations and, and calling them out, showing them these truths. Keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Repentance, turning back to God. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Cleansed. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. We had time to get into Christ's righteousness, right? And for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, when God looks at us, He sees Christ's righteousness. Verse 23, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? That keeps us from being hard, right? Right? God doesn't desire for them to be in that place. God doesn't desire for them to continue in that sin. He wants them to turn. He wants them to to turn. But when a righteous man turns away from righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered Because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed, because of them he shall die. Who's accountable accountable for for sin? Myself. Themselves. It's it's that straightforward. That's our accountability. Yet you say, and this is what Israel was saying to, to, to God, the way of the Lord is not fair. We can hear that echoed (laughs) all over today in the world and the church. The way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair, God's way, and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he has committed and does what is lawful and right he preserves himself alive. Because he considers and turns away from all transgressions which he committed he shall surely live and he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not fair. A house of Israel is not O house of Israel is not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair. We'll just close with this. And again, just understanding what sin is, who the sinner is, and who's responsible for the sin. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways. I don't think any preacher could say that any more authoritatively, any more seriously. I will judge you, God speaking, O house of Israel, everyone according to His ways, says the Lord God. Repent. See your life as God sees it and turn. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, those things that you trip up in, those cycles that you get into, that that rut that you find yourself there that becomes a ditch. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Hmm. For why should you die, O house of Israel? You want a picture of grace? God's offering it repentance. Right? He's showing you what you need to do. Showing showing us where that 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 victory, that, that, that deliverance lies. For I, God speaking, have no pleasure in the death of one who dies. Talking about spiritual separation, talking about hell, talking about I've said it before when I was coming out of addictions. You know, I don't want the rapture to happen with a beer in my hand. Right? Standing before the Savior, living in my sin, that, that that just be horrible. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God, therefore turn and live. It's that simple. It's that simple. Right? Christ paid the price on the cross. Right? The plan, plan is, is laid out. But the sin is still sin. The sinner is still the sinner. And the responsibility is on the individual to turn. Dearly Father, Lord, it's a little bit of a different message and a lot of reading, but Lord, I pray that Ezekiel 18 is forever marked in our hearts and in our Bibles so we can find it again. Lord, I pray that there is a deep intrigue to this passage of Scripture. A deep intrigue that, that leads us to wanting to understand what happened on the cross that much deeper, Lord. Lord, we're all, we're all stuck in, in, in something one way or another. Lord, we're, we're not perfect here in this church, and, and you know that better than anybody. We might put on good faces. But Lord, I pray that you would help us guard against religion. Lord, you would help us be transparent with the things that that were broken over. We would turn to each other for help, but Lord, just for these sins. Lord, and we all have them. Lord, I pray that we would do exactly what you tell Israel, repent. Turn so that we can live or get a new get a new heart, get a new spirit, Lord. Turn to you and be cleansed. And I pray that you would use these verses in our own lives and that we would be able to speak speak truth into people who, who just don't have answers. and I pray that you would just use us in that mighty way. We thank you for what the rest of this day holds. Lord, I pray that even our conversations over dinner would reflect maybe, maybe something an encouragement, challenge that we've received this morning. And we just pray these things in your precious name. Amen.